Hi, I'm John Chrisman, a student at NKU, and I am here with Dr. Landon, a professor at NKU. And uh, hello. Hi there. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Good. Uh, we're going to talk today about the First Crusade that started in 1095 and went to 1099, um, and a little bit about the propaganda that was used, um, things of that nature. So in the spring of 1095, Alexis Cuminus, Cuminus, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, sends word to the papacy that they're being overrun by Islamic Turks. Uh, November of 1095, Pope Urban II gives a speech at the Council of Claremont. Um, what I found interesting through my studies was he only wanted to give that one speech. And he did it in front of a somewhere between 200 and 300 people and then told them to go out and spread the word. And you had people like Peter the uh, Penniless, or Peter the Hermit, I'm sorry, uh, who was there. But what I found interesting was these people in 1095, if you had an education, you were very lucky. And the papacy worked off of the fact that you couldn't own a, well, you could own a Bible, but you couldn't copy that Bible. So I'm wondering what, how these people, what and how these people get to where they're going, and how do they remember this? I mean, this is a speech that, um, from all accounts, took two and a half hours. You're taking a two and a half hour speech and then spreading it with people that have to walk or riding a horse, going hundreds of miles to back to wherever they're at. There's a lot of confusion there on who gets what. Um, like you've got Count Emiko of Flonheim. When he gets word, or when history begins his story of that account, he's claiming that Christ spoke to him directly and that he was going to bring about the end of days, therefore the Ryland massacres. But there have been historians who say that he manipulated people, and then there have been people that say maybe not. I'm on the I'm on the fence about this because I think what was told to him on that hundred or so hundred, you know, what did that person remember on that journey to him? To give him that. Right. So, and I mean, you've got Peter the Hermit, too, who also got, what, 40,000? Yeah, it was 40,000 peasants to march 
to the Byzantine Empire, what did he tell them? I mean, I, I, we've spoken before right. about with the education or the lack thereof, we would follow. I mean, I would follow because of the time and the and where we are. Um, mm-hmm. We're peasants in Europe and. 1095, we're uneducated, we report to our feudal lord, the church is all-knowing and all-encompassing. Right. So when they tell us this is the problem, then yes, we're going to gravitate towards that. And I see that, um, but I also see the propaganda that was used, I mean... The propaganda in in the in it was very the paintings mm-hmm. of the knights, um, the fact that there's uh, like Peter the Hermit. Uh, at one point, he's with a bunch of knights and they find a spear. He convinces them that this is the spear that pierced Christ's side. Mm-hmm. They rally and overcome. When they're at Jerusalem outside the gates, he rallies them to in, to go in. When they're trying to leave, they're bombarded. He rallies them to to leave. He's a great orator, um, and I believe a great propagandist. After all this, he just goes home, and you don't hear anything historical about him until he's dead. Right. Interesting. So it's very, this man gets 40,000 people, marches. He doesn't have 40,000 by the time he gets there. Uh, Most of them have left. But he sticks around. I mean, Alexis, when he sees Peter the Hermit, just puts him over in Turkey. He does not want him at all. He no, he not... wants the rabble through and out. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he he sends him there. Well, he comes. I mean, he comes back, and waits for the knights to show up, and then goes with the knights. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the propaganda that was used there is just it it boggles my mind. Um. Because this one person that he's very insignificant to the whole story, but there are parts that make him very prominent to the entire thing. Yes, organizing that many peasants to march from uh, either eastern, northern France, or from the Rhineland country all the way to Constantinople is a pretty heroic exercise. Yes. And and I th- I thought that that was a brilliant way to look. I mean, you've got Count Emiko and he takes his people and they I mean, he lost the battle in Hungary. Uh, there are accounts that there were so many dead that when they crossed the river it was like they were walking on land. Mhm. Um but he also 
makes it to Constantinople and is one of the great orators helping to even though he did he did such a travesty, he gets there and helps rally. So I, I th- just really think these people, um, because propaganda has been used for centuries. Yes. I, I think these two individuals in particular really used it to secure a victory. Mm-hmm. Now, leaving there was probably not the... I mean, you can't just claim something and then leave. And leave it abandoned that mm-hmm. someone else is going to overtake it again, which I think is the problem why we keep going through the first crusade, the second crusade, the third crusade. It, it's a, you get there, you have to plant your flag and stay. You can't just say, I, I claim this for the Holy Land or this Holy Land for ours and then leave. Just made no. Mm-hmm. It made no sense to me as as a student. Now, I did a lot of studying with this in mind that over this five year period or six year period, mm-hmm. not only did Germans die and Frenchmen, but unknown amounts of Jew, uh, of the Jewish community yes. were just massacred. Yes, for not having their not having the same faith. I believe was, mm-hmm. but I mean they they'd been. I don't think there was an explanation of who the Turks were. I don't think there was. I don't think that the average European peasant really had any concept of the notion of what a person who practices uh, Islam looked like, let alone what they believe. They're turned into a boogeyman of sorts. But then I, I think going back to your notion of propaganda, there is a very famous historian named Jonathan Riley Smith, who's probably one of the greatest historian uh, historians, pardon me, of the Crusades generally, who uh, argued that uh, you know so much of the violence that turned toward the Jewish people is uh, really, for lack of a better word, simply looking at what was perceived to be or made to be as a result of what we would call propaganda today, the enemy close at home. Mm-hmm. If you were on your way to the Holy Land to help cleanse it against a, a foe that you really know nothing about, you couldn't identify if you saw, the notion became, especially in the hands of the individuals who ended up leading the Rhineland massacres, that it would be best to cleanse the unbeliever or the infidel at home. Mm-hmm. And a, a longer view of that in regard to this rabid form of anti-Semitism which developed And many historians of the 20th century and of the Nazi atrocities associated with the Holocaust view the Rhineland massacres of the early portion of the First Crusade as being the the starting point of a long anti-Semitic crusade to cleanse Europe of Jewish people. 
So this period that you're talking about is of fundamental importance to understanding the history of anti-Semitism in Europe. Now, it's not to say that there isn't anti-Semitism before the Rhineland massacres. There obviously is, demonstrably so. However, what makes these massacres different is that anti-Semitism in advance of, these, of the Rhineland massacres tended to be, and this doesn't make it any less horrible, it tended to be state-sponsored, and it tended to be uh, based upon expulsion. In other words, turning the Jewish people into individuals without homes, making them move, right. trying to move them outside of your borders. That is horrific enough in itself. We would call them dis- they're displaced persons who had been in those communities from which they were displaced for centuries. So uh, you can imagine the horror of it as a fellow human being, what, what it would be like to have people come out and say, get out. Mm-hmm. simply for what you believe. It's different. But with the Rhineland massacres, it, this is no longer state-sponsored. This is the average population lashing out at the Jewish peoples, mm-hmm. killing thousands and thousands of them along the way. Uh, how we understand that or how this happened, I'll talk for just a second, I'm going to turn it back over to you, mm-hmm. is let's go back to um, Urban the Second's speech or his sermon at Clermont, where he's actually saying the First Crusade needs to happen as a result of this incursion into the Holy Land. What he actually suggested, or what he offered is a better way to put it, was an indulgence that guaranteed that any sin committed along the way to the Holy Land, as long as one is striving to get there and attempting to reclaim it for the Roman Church which is also an interesting thing because that was actually within the realm of Byzantium at the time. But to reclaim it for the Roman church in a political move as well as a religious one, that any sin committed along the way was forgiven. Yeah. And we know that because there was a very important bishop from the Cathedral of Chartres in in France, one of the most beautiful Gothic cathedrals, uh, which was... um, I believe it's just at that point starting to be rebuilt and redesigned in the Gothic fashion. All of these things coincide. Uh, his name was the Bishop Fulker or Fulcher of Chartres, who documented, as he said, word for word, what the Pope was saying. So we can actually read it. And I think, going back to the point you made about the Pope's making this sermon, giving this sermon to a group of people, telling them what he wants them to do, and then adding this very sweet promise that no matter what sin you commit is going to be forgiven along the way as long as your heart is right and you're trying to retake the Holy Land for the Roman Church, is that he thought initially this call would only be for the knightly class. Mm -hmm. It would not be for the peasants. But the problem becomes such a sweeping promise to the Pope is something that became tempting to the average person to also participate in. This is a guaranteed entrance by the pontiff, the pontifex maximus, the bridge to heaven, the representative of Christ on earth, the vicar of Christ on earth has made you this promise, you will be forgiven, and added to that guaranteed entrance to heaven, and if I recall, skipping purgatory. Now, this is you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. If we had been there, or if we had been a peasant in the countryside and we had heard someone preaching this, we would like to think, ah, we wouldn't have fallen for this type of nonsense. Right. You know, and I, I, please understand, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm not uh, talking against Roman Catholics and those who practice it. But at the time, I, I think 
John, if you or I had been there and heard it, we would have been at least strongly tempted to go. Oh, yeah. Right? I, and, I totally agree. Yes. And, and then you add in the absolute horror show of the layers of propaganda that are added that lead to anti-Semitism, which are perpetrated both by the common people and by the nightly class in successive waves, you realize uh, this, how dangerous the Pope's message was, which I don't think, and I've thought about this many times, I, I don't think that he saw far enough into the future, in other words, what his words were going to do, and once they were unleashed on the people, how they could be used and misused. So we can see how complicated this problem actually is. Anyway, I'm going to turn it back to you and, and uh, well, I mean, we'll carry on. I, I totally agree with you that, that 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 statement in itself would, for the common man, be very appetizing. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go through purgatory. I can get to heaven this way, and if I fail upon the way there or fall, it doesn't matter. Right. Like these, and and yes, I, I totally agree. He was not talking to the common man. He was talking to knights and the knightly orders who at the time were fighting amongst themselves. Absolutely they were. And he tried to... I think he was trying to gather them up and get them on a different path mm-hmm. other than killing each other. Yes. Giving them someone else to put out their aggressions on. Absolutely. Um, but when you tell 200 people or 300 people, go spread my word... It's not just going to be that knightly order or that knightly class that gets the message. They're going to tell everybody. I mean, I don't know how you would feel. I, that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. I would, If I was told, go spread the word, mm-hmm. then that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And we didn't ha- have formats like this. Right. Um I would have to stand on a soapbox in the middle of the city and preach to people coming and going. Mm-hmm. And when you've got that kind of, or go back to a church and preach, so you're just, you're building upon, I tell 200, that two, what one person out of that 200 tells a thousand. Mm-hmm. Or it gets to a thousand, then you're really just dominoing the effect. Mm-hmm. And I did notice through my research that that one comment out of everything that he said, out of everything that he tried, that one do, you know, you may have to sin, but it'll mm-hmm. be okay. Mm-hmm. That's what got relayed mostly of all. Yes. That the Pontifex, or as you said, the vicar of the Catholic Church, is saying, go out and do for God as long as you get this holy land, whatever mm-hmm. you do to get there. Mm-hmm. And 
that would be ap- I mean appetizing to anybody who heard it uh, at the time. But like I said, again, they didn't have newspapers or things of that nature. So there was really no way for anybody, especially a clergyman, to spread word other than to stand in a pulpit. Mm -hmm. And he's not just speaking to knights in the knightly order. He's talking to the common man who shows up. Yes. And, I mean... Was it propaganda, though? It, it, was that—I believe it is, mm-hmm. but that is the that is the greatest part of the propaganda right there. I can get you to move if you believe what—if you believe you're going to get to heaven any way you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then without purgatory, that just— Sweetened the deal with them. Sure did. <laughs> it sure did. Well, and it, it's it's important to point out that in the centuries in in advance of the Crusade, where there had been interventions by political powers turning Jewish peoples into displaced persons, the papacy had often intervened on behalf of the Jewish peoples. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that they are without their problems, because they, the Roman Church certainly did have them. But there was a, a relatively uh, consistent policy in regard to uh, not harming the Jewish peoples. And there are many bulls and many uh, decrees that were passed that were chastising individuals who had, in fact, persecuted the Jewish people so intensely. But then we get to 1095, we get to 1096. I think people with those anti Semitic intentions are the ones who are adding to what the Pope has promised. Yeah. And as they're making these additions, as you say, I think as we were talking before we started recording, that it is like the game of telephone. What's being added? What's been changed along the way as this message is being spread? It became very easy to manipulate that message and turn it into one which was, in fact, Mm anti-Semitic. And I think that does help to explain uh, some of some of the atrocities that were committed there. But the biggest question for me in regard to especially the Rhineland Crusades is how did this mass of people form and carry out atrocities against fellow human beings in a way which was apparently so easy? And that bothers me. I don't like yeah, that. I don't, I don't like, like this at all. Uh, one of the things I, I, is... Maybe it would be good to consider the writings of an individual named Hannah Arendt, who was a brilliant historian and political theorist of the 20th century. She's focused mainly on the historical period from the French Revolution through the totalitarian era of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And she herself is Jewish. And one of the things that she focused on was this notion of how masses are formed. We talked about this some in the French Revolution class that you were in with me. And that once masses are formed, it is always through propaganda, first off, that they are formed. But then they, how easily groups are manipulated to commit atrocities against fellow human beings. And oftentimes, Harant and then other um, French historians from the late 19th century and some quite right up to the present have argued that, generally speaking, when propaganda is used, 
it will affect uh, 70 to 85 percent of the population. So seven, eight, maybe nine out of 10 right. <laughs> in the population are able to be swayed by it. And then you'll have a much smaller group who appears to be impervious to it. And that group which is small and impervious to the propaganda is the one which is required by ethical duty to speak out against what they're seeing. We don't see much of that no. in this period, do we? Well, during the Rhineland massacres, my research, through my research, I found that if you were found to be hiding like a Jewish family, they are, they would drag you out into the street too. And that I think in Hungary is where they became, where they've got the biggest resistance mm-hmm. of the general populace going, no, we're not going to stand for this. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, to your comments about like the populace, you've also got to count. And if you're doing, if you're looking at ten ninety five as a feudal system, the count is telling you Christ has spoken to me mm-hmm. and told me that all these people need to die. Mm-hmm. I can see where the propaganda and the people during that feudal system would stand up and go, okay, mm-hmm. we have to follow our Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, I mean, to the effect, it, it is mind boggling to the effect that they, that one man had on thousands of people to yes. just drive a, a civilization further and further east. Yes. Um, Because, I mean, from the early 1090s, the Jewish communities in in the British Isles were ran out. Mm -hmm. And then you just continue this, I want to call it train, of just constant battering. Displacement, yes. Displacement, battering. Yes. Um where you take peop- a people and just move them. And it's, it's mind-boggling, mm-hmm. it honestly is, mm-hmm. that propaganda can be used in that, for, in that sense mm-hmm. to either displace or eradicate an entire civilization of people. Yes. An entire race of people. Yes. And it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely horrifying. But through those years, well, I mean, the the Ryland massacres took was it less than six months? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right about that. Yeah, yeah. Le- mm-hmm. In less than six months, they killed an unknown amount of. It's thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands. Of, yes. Yeah. And then went on to kill innocent Turks and... Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's stop and talk about that for just a minute uh, in regard to the other people who they killed along the way. Okay. So when you've got the, the People's Army, Crusade, Peasants' Crusade, whatever we choose to call it, because they aren't organized, they're untrained, they also have no supply train. Right. As they're making their way, 
down the Rhineland, then making their way through Central Europe, then into Eastern Europe, eventually all the way to Constantinople. Without a supply train, they are pillaging in order to feed themselves along the way. The other thing that they're doing is, and this differentiates from the anti-Semitic uh, massacres in the Rhineland, they are now sort of in, indiscriminately killing individuals who they come into contact with who are fellow Christians, sometimes Latin Christians, but the further east you get, you're starting to come into contact with uh, the Eastern Orthodox Christians. Right. And they dress differently, people in Eastern Europe, from people in North Central Europe. In other words, indigenous dress is different. Well, they're foreign. They look different. They are probably infidels. And they start wiping out fellow Christians without with such ignorance that they don't know what they're doing. So part of it is to feed themselves. The other part is they're facing resistance from people whose farms are being ransacked, etc. And then their thought, and I'm simplifying this greatly, is they dress funny. They must believe funny. Therefore, right. they too need to be added to the list of people who we are going to kill. It's absolute... Um, it's insanity and uh, ignorance and maliciousness on a level that you think, well, human beings, you know, what are we capable of? The answer is absolute atrocities. Yes. Yes. I, I, I totally agree that um, not only is that's a, I want to call it an example of what's to come mm -hmm. um, in a historical look. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Ryland massacres, if you look at those four years mm -hmm. from 95 to 99, mm -hmm. I don't know how people can look at other atrocities that have happened in, in throughout history and go, what were they thinking? I mean, they these are just buildups. Mm -hmm. Um when you take again when you take groups of people mm -hmm. and propaganda and you add the two you get monstro uh, I want to call it a monstrosity mm -hmm. um, because I mean honestly Hitler used propaganda hugely extensively extensively yes. to yes. move and basically do the not the same thing that Emiko did, but similar. Yes. We, we, we can take a people and these, these people are our problem. Mm -hmm. um, the French didn't, well, the French used the upper echelon to go, they're our problem. Yes. Uh, yeah. So well, let's go back to those uh, those points in regard to the the knightly order, yes, and the violence that was basically rampant amongst them, and also what they were doing in general, turning their violence toward the peasantry. And you had mentioned, and you were spot on, that the Pope wanted to take that internal violence and channel it toward an external victim. Uh, so this was a quite a convenient thing to happen for right. for Alexius to actually write to him and say we need help. So the Pope wants. That relatively small but highly trained group of individuals, militarily trained, to go to the east and to help free Jerusalem. But one of the things that the Roman church had done, and of course you, you've, you know this through the various classes that you've had, 
is that they had strictly forbidden usury. In other words, the charging of interest on loans, generally. Something, right. something isn't rectified until the Renaissance, you know, the rise of the Medici, various other uh, banking families who happen to be Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholic Church then, um, for all practical purposes, set up the Jewish people in that they were allowed to charge usury. Now, one of the things that you start looking at in the economics of this situation, you ask, well, how does this propaganda go from an individual who is a knight? How does he all of a sudden add anti-Semitism into this? One of the facts of the matter is many of these individuals in the knightly class were, as a result of preparing to go to the Holy Land, indebted to, to uh, Jewish peoples in the Rhineland. In other words, they had taken loans. It is such a cynical and horrific move on the part of the individuals who are the, the heavily organized knights to flip that narrative and mm -hmm. turn on the Jewish peoples in order to get rid of them and simultaneously expunge their debt. And then you could say, well, then what gets added to it then? Uh, millenarian fervor that we can hasten Christ's return if only we are uh, successful in eradicating Europe of the Jewish people. I mean, it's just right. utter insanity, right? And, and the horror of it. And then you mentioned some of the propaganda pictures and paintings that were done, illuminated manuscripts. There are ones, for example, that went so far as to suggest that Christ would have been uh, blessing the Crusaders in their massacres of the Jews. You find examples of Christ, upper right-hand portion of the painting, looking down, blessing the individual the knight who is just about to behead an unarmed Jewish individual. Mm -hmm. And you think, good heavens, how did this happen? But you can see there, where in the hands of a clever individual and someone who is probably educated in the case of some of the, the knights who are involved here, how easy it would be to add to the narrative in such a way as to benefit themselves and to get a larger portion of the population on side with them. Mm -hmm. And to create... Uh, an enemy where there wasn't an enemy. And that to me is, uh, I don't know, it's just upsetting. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, I know that they they charged, uh, while they were doing their crusading, they were charging people as they went along mm -hmm. in order, mm -hmm. what was it, feed us and give us money? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're protecting you. Yeah. And that was the guise that they used. I, I learned that through research, that the knights used basic, um, I don't know the word for it. Extortion, extortion techniques. Extortion <laughs> yes, techniques yeah. of, we're protecting you, mm -hmm. give us money and food. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them became rich that way. Yes. Um, getting there and then coming back hitting them back up again, going, we saved you from these people, give us more money. Mm -hmm. And this extortion tactic, that, it kind of sickens me, because, like you said, they're taking loans out, they're killing the bankers, mm -hmm. then turning around and extorting money mm -hmm. from villagers who have none. Yes. Uh, the food on their table is what they have, and they're being forced to give these, give it up to crusaders and knights and 
peasant armies and things that are just rolling through their towns Mm -hmm. for five years Mm -hmm. or four years. Four to five years, this band of people are traspeing through Europe into, you know, the Holy Land. And like you said, they, they don't have food. They don't have provisions. So they're just pilfering and, and stealing mm-hmm. and taking what they want. What did it do in, more on an economical standpoint to you have to ask that what it did to those peasants oh it's disastrous like right. like a year there were accounts of like crops for the season just being handed over mm-hmm. that's food on their you know their table for a year oh, that's starvation when winter comes right yeah yeah absolutely where they were taking their goats and their cattle and just taking them with them Mm -hmm. and yes when winter came Mm -hmm. there were unknown amounts of deaths due to the starvation and Mm -hmm. freezing Mm -hmm. it's just i want to call it a domino effect like urban gives a speech that's the first domino and then as you go you watch this unimaginable thing happen because I guess it's because we we live in this time it's very hard to look at 1095 as these people are capable of this Mm -hmm. but and then again through my research I realized Europe Eastern Europe and Western Europe are very small in comparison, you think mm-hmm. big, and, mm-hmm. and it's not very far to get to <laughs> where you're going. Well, it's a long way on foot. It yes. is a long way, and that's why I'm glad you said that, because if you think about someone who's living in northeastern France, a peasant, for example, they have probably never had access even to the crude maps which were available during uh, the end of the 11th century. So when they hear they're going off to the Holy Land, they know that somewhere off to the east. They have no idea how, yeah. how much they're going to be walking for the following months, right? So it's a long way. So, yes, it's relatively small. It's compact because Europe is just sort of the appendage at the end of Asia. But it is something that I think would have been a rude awakening to people once they actually got on the road. And then once people start getting hungry, you know, that's the other thing we start adding to that. That That's when people become even more extreme. Yeah. So they're, they're stealing, they're pillaging all along the way. Uh, the brutality of it is really quite something. But a lot of that had to do with the, I think, the ignorance of the population. And I, I just mean they're unlearned. They have no idea what they're going to face. And then when you actually start walking and you're in, you're in for a month, whew, Two months. Oh gosh, three months, four months, and then you're at starvation levels of hunger. Then you can start to see why people are acting the way they are, and it doesn't excuse it, but it helps us to understand them a little bit. The other thing. Let's go back to uh, we were talking about the maybe the percentage of the population who were affected uh, by this propaganda. So we we know we, know we get tens of thousands of uh, normal people, average mm-hmm. people who go out. And then you think, well, uh, amongst them, are there people who were, who were doing things that they knew they shouldn't be doing? 
I would say yes. Yes. Okay. So the reason I, uh, and the, because I, I, I want to have look at some resonances between uh, what happened in the Crusades in the Rhineland and what happens in Nazi Germany. Because one thing that the Nuremberg trials concluded is that it was not acceptable to say I was just following orders. Right. Right. You can't appeal to that because you are a war criminal. You are a murderer. And I'm just following orders. You know, we hear that now and it makes the stomach turn, just following orders. Mm-hmm. But you think there are a lot of people who are with that group who would have said the same thing if we asked them and, and really started pressing them. Mm-hmm. Do you really believe this? No, well, I just felt like I had to do Well, maybe. But that doesn't hold up. As soon as you start harming another human being, uh, orders are worthless. Yes. Right? So, and I find, I don't know which group is worse. They're all I'm, so problematic. Yes. You know? they're, they're, <laughs> it, it, like I said before, you take that group of people and, and it's a, it's like looking, especially with a historian or the way I look at it as a historian, that is a marker this is how people can act mm-hmm. in this situation. Mm-hmm. And then you go to Nazi Germany and you look and they were starving mm-hmm. and they were broke. And, you know, that it's a stepping stone mm-hmm. throughout history. I mean, you can go, uh, it's far back as Greece the Greece of the Greeks displaced the Jews <laughs> in the BCs mm-hmm. so I mean it's just that that crusade is the starting point for hundreds of years mm-hmm. of and I don't want to I don't want to say they didn't have conviction, but it spawned crusade after crusade after crusade, but up into the 1500s? You know, I'm not sure when the last one is. (laughs) I I know the last great uh, battle is in the 16th century, sea battle at least, and that's the Venetians at Lepanto. Yes. They stopped the Turkish fleet in the Mediterranean. Generally speaking, that sort of sets up the, uh, I guess, the long-term stalemate between East and West and between um, the area that would be considered the Holy Land and, the, and Europe. Uh, it just, it, but it, it leads to centuries and centuries of violence uh, but between Christianity and Islam, mm-hmm. which you could still see playing out today. And then also, of course, the continued persecution of the Jewish peoples as a, a small minority who are almost always caught in the middle and then, as a result, uh, intentionally picked out for the atrocity. Well, I, I, I do believe, though, once you get past what we would call the Third Crusade, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people just going to the papacy and going give me an okay to do this. And basically it's an okay to rape, pillage, Mm -hmm. burn, 
on your way to the Holy Land, and most of them didn't even make it there. Right. <laughs> well, so the Fourth Crusade is a good example of that. It was destined for Egypt. Then they get held up intentionally by the Venetians for long enough that they're eventually rerouted to Constantinople. They go into Constantinople and sack it. So you've got the Latin Christians are sacking the capital of Eastern Christendom, which weakened it irreparably. Then 1453, of course, it, it falls to um, Turkish invaders. So it's just one of those things that the, the Latin Christians are, in fact, responsible for that. So, um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't been very positive today, no, has it? <laughs> no, I mean, I just through my research, through researching this entire thing, which I enjoyed immensely, it does look, though, like after the third, it's like people just rent the Children's Crusade, mm-hmm. like things of that nature. It just, it, it got silly after a minute. Mm-hmm. Christians killing Christians, um, just, it, it seemed like any reason that they could get to act out, they took it as a crusade, mm-hmm. which, again, speaks to humanity as a whole. Because by the 1400s, they're educated. Like, people can read. Well, some. Some, some can. Yeah, some. It's, it's still a tiny little percentage. They're... they're, they're... After, after the printing press... Uh, yes. Education really begins to explode. So that's uh, in the 1450s. So. so, okay. Oh, yes. The Gutenberg. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening. Um, and I hope everybody listening learned something. Um, so, uh, again, my name is John Chrisman. I'm a student at NKU. And this is Dr. Landon. He's a professor at NKU. Hey, thanks a lot, John. It's been great. Thank you.